Fresh stories about the Underground Railroad are constantly surfacing, thanks to tours like the Waterways to Freedom in Norfolk, Virginia. As a historian and, and very much a community activist, it had uh, concerned me that so many people didn't know any of this history. Yellow Hill near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania holds many stories of former slaves and the Quakers who helped them. Quakers were the first organized religion to make it mandatory that their members not own slaves. Runaway slaves smelled freedom when they reached Lewiston, New York, because they knew Canada was just across the river. Canada's reputation as a safe haven for fugitive slaves grew out of the development of planned settlements like Buxton, Ontario. So as time went on up until the Civil War, Buxton became the largest of those planned settlements. Travel the Underground Railroad from Virginia to Ontario and meet some of the actors along the road to freedom on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Later in the hour, we'll travel to Buxton, Ontario, where we'll learn about this planned settlement for fugitive slaves and how it remains a nice community today. We will talk about the important role that the town of Lewiston, New York, played as a last stop north before crossing into Canada. Also coming up on World Footprints, we will drive along part of the Underground Railroad through Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and hear stories about fugitive slaves and the Quakers who helped them. From the floor of the New York Times Travel Show, we will shine a destination spotlight on the Falkland Islands and Romania. But first, the city of Norfolk, Virginia is an important 400-year-old port city and home to the largest naval base in the world. But even as a southern mid-Atlantic city, Norfolk also played a crucial role in the Underground Railroad as one of the last port stops on the road to Freedom North. Much of this history is now being shared through Norfolk's self-guided Waterways to Freedom tour that Dr. Cassandra Newby Alexander from Norfolk State University helped to create in order to share Norfolk's important history. As a historian and, and very much a community activist, it had uh, concerned me that so many people didn't know any of this history about the area. Uh, we're an unusual place in that there are a number of prominent people in the nation who've actually come from Norfolk. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that the young people as well as the general population knew how important this area has been and still and continues to be uh, to the nation at large. And so uh, because I've been doing a, a lot of work on, um, because my specialty is Virginia history, mm -hmm. and I've done a lot of work on the local community, um, I wanted to bring out some of these stories, and so I, I uh, was asked to be a part of a committee headed by Donna Allen, who's the Vice President for Sales and Marketing at Visit Norfolk. And I started talking about some of these stories, and it so intrigued her that we got together when, uh, we, when I received a grant from the National Park Service to do a symposium on the local Underground Railroad Network. 
and um, and I said I wanted to create a map, and then from the map, uh, a website, an interactive website was created. The Underground Railroad was a vast network, but not everyone who provided assistance to fugitive slaves were altruistic. Many people were paid for their help, but it came at a great risk. I think it might surprise some to, to, to learn or even consider that uh, people like captains, you know, the various captains who, who helped uh, slaves escape were actually uh, compassionate. You know, when, when you think about the South, it, you don't think about um, generally individuals back at that time um, being, you know, supportive of the, uh, the efforts to, to escape to freedom. Uh, but I know you, you've had to uncover some wonderful and surprising stories uh, as part of your research, can you can you talk about some of those things that that have really resonated with you? Some of those stories that have really resonated with you. Certainly. Well, you know, a lot of the people who did help uh, enslaved people escape um, actually got paid money. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick with my wife Tanya, and we are speaking to Dr. Cassandra Newby Alexander about the important role that Norfolk, Virginia, played in the Underground Railroad and how the Waterways to Freedom Tour is keeping that history alive. We have more information about the Waterways to Freedom Tour on this show page at worldfootprints.com. The risks were tremendous. Um, and there's the, the case of the uh, Kaziah, which was a schooner uh, captained by William Bayless. This is a schooner out of Delaware. Um, and uh, they were captured. Uh, and, and William Bayless was sentenced to the Virginia Penitentiary for two, 10 years, which at that time was a death sentence. Very few people survived even a couple of years in the, in the prison. And his family worked very hard trying to get him out, and really it was the, the Civil War that provided him with a reprieve from the 10-year sentence. Um, but a lot of these people were paid um, anywhere from 25 to sometimes $100, which in our dollars, you know, translates into about $1,000, mm-hmm. uh, if, if it's as much as $100. And, and some of these enslaved people um, hired out their time and they acquired the money that way. In other cases, they simply stole it from the owners that they felt, uh, were abusing them anyway, um, and they they felt very justified in taking this money to to gain their freedom. But to to give you um, uh, uh, one example, well, actually there's so many, but one of the earliest examples that hit the national press was um, the escape of a husband and wife, George and Rebecca Latimer. And these two individuals left from Norfolk in in 1842 after after attempting to escape several times. And they were very young. Um, uh, they were in their early 20s. And what propelled them to escape was that Rebecca was became pregnant and told her husband that she would not have a child born in slavery. Uh, and so on the self-guided tour, it tells you where he worked. And we don't know what ship he escaped on. In fact, with all of the national press about his escape, he just says he escaped aboard a ship. Mm-hmm. And uh, they ended up in Boston. Uh, and then in Boston, on, the, on I think it was the first day he was there, he was spotted on the streets by a man who used to work for his owner. 
and his owner came up to Boston demanding that his slave be um, returned to him and uh, extradited back to Virginia. And there were abolitionists uh, in Boston at that time who refused to allow that to happen, so they trumped up some charges against him, claiming he had stolen something from them, and the constable put the owner, <laughs> James Gray, in jail up there in Boston, <laughs> and they basically visited him and told the abolitionists and told him, you know, uh, we'll make you a deal. You sell your slave for four hundred dollars, and um, and we'll let you out. <laughs> and he refused, uh, and uh, and they said, okay, well, we'll let you stay here for a little bit, and uh, then after. Um, uh, and we'll come back and visit you after a while. And when they came back, he eventually agreed. Uh, and the money was actually raised by a black pastor at one of the churches in Boston. The Waterways to Freedom tour shares history through the stories of the actors' lives, and it makes us consider how our modern-day history may have changed if these stories had different endings. I do love to play that what-if game with my students as well as whenever I'm lecturing in different venues about the Underground Railroad. You know, what if Rebecca and George did not um, make it to freedom? What if they were captured? More than likely they would have been sold because George Latimer was actually sold um, to James Gray by his uncle. Uh, His uncle was his owner. And and so he had already been sold before. Uh, it would not have been unusual for his own his current owner, who owned a sawmill in Norfolk, to have sold him had he been captured uh, mm-hmm. trying to escape. So it, it is a, a a very intriguing idea. Um, some other um, examples of people who escaped. There's a man by the name of uh, he changed his name to Thomas Bain. But his name was Sam Nixon, <clears throat> and along the the trail, uh, we identified where he lived with his owner. Uh, his owner was a dentist, uh, Dr. Martin, and Martin actually trained him or apprenticed him to be a dentist and sent him out at night on night calls. And so it wasn't unusual to see Sam Nixon, uh, uh, you know, going about the streets of Norfolk after curfew because Norfolk, like most cities, had a curfew not only for enslaved blacks but for free blacks as well. And he used that as an opportunity to become a conductor on the Underground Railroad in the 1850s, the early 1850s. And Thomas uh, Bain, as he would later be known, uh, would actually, uh, once word got out that he was probably involved in the Underground Railroad, got aboard a steamship and went up to New Bedford, Massachusetts which at that time had become a a mecca for fugitive slaves, is because uh, one of the pastors of, I believe, 12th Street Baptist Church up in Boston moved his congregation down to New Bedford because he was actually encouraging fugitive slaves to be in his church, and he was using his church as a vehicle of assisting fugitive slaves. And Boston, by the end of the 1840s, had become um, very pro-slavery because of the merchant activities. And so he moved it down to New Bedford, which is at the southernmost point of uh, Massachusetts. It's also a big whaling community. Uh, He moved them there. He moved his church there. And so it became a mecca for fugitive slaves. And the connection uh, with the Civil War is that 
New Bedford is the place where the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, Regiment was organized. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people don't even know about why New Bedford was chosen as the place to raise the first uh, African-American military unit for the Civil War. It's because it was the place where fugitive slaves dominated. Many of these stories are offered on the Waterways to Freedom tour, but one doesn't have to travel to Norfolk to experience this Underground Railroad history. If you were to do the tour online, uh, you have the, the map and you can click onto each of the different numbers that reflects uh, what, whoever the individual was or a certain, like, excuse me, a certain location or site. Um, of departure and uh, and there you could actually read what happens so there's a little blurb there or you can click the audio and there is a narration done by me about that particular site now if you come to Norfolk there is an iPod that you can use um, and the the um, the map that they have tells you how to access that. And you can actually take the map with you, and the map shows you both the current locations as well as the historic locations. So you can actually walk the route, which um, uh, is essentially from uh, close to Harbor Park, that that area where the passenger steamships were were docked, uh, all the way to this area around Nauticus. So it's about maybe a two-mile walk mm-hmm. uh, where you can, and, it's, it's, and you can see it on the map that it's, it's not a huge walk. But what's interesting is during this particular time that we've been continuing to do more research on this, uh, we've actually located uh, where the slave jail was uh, was uh, situated in Norfolk. And ironically, we would see all these accounts of, well, you know, there's a slave market, there's a slave jail if somebody gets captured or, you know, or is attempting to run away, or perhaps there's a person who's visiting the area and they want to secure their slave, they place them in the slave jail. Well, we finally, through looking at deeds and so forth, found the locations of those, and so the map is currently being updated to include that information because these are sites that also symbolized uh, for many African Americans uh, the pain of slavery Mm -hmm. because this is where family members uh, were pulled apart from one another, sometimes never to be seen again. And, and interestingly, they, they became the gathering sites uh, during the Civil War when Norfolk became an occupied city in May of 1863. They were the gathering sites uh, where, where soldiers would go out into the rural areas in and around the city of Norfolk and uh, bring in enslaved people into the city. And so those who were in the city would gather around these places to see if these folks who were coming in were long-lost family members who had been sold from them. And so there are lots of stories about how they saw their family members again or in some cases didn't see family members and the emotions surrounding that. So interestingly, these sites that were full of pain were in some ways, in, in some cases, transmuted into 
into cheerful and joyful reunions mm-hmm. for African Americans. To explore the Waterways to Freedom Tour, visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for a direct link. In this Destination Spotlight, Tony Mason helps us shine a light on the Falkland Islands from the New York Times Travel Show. People are starting to learn that the Falkland Islands is out there. And what you can see in the Falkland Islands is an amazing display of wildlife. Five of the seven breeding species of penguin are in the Falklands. You have the albatross, which was at, at uh, the point of extinction, was brought out of extinction in the Falkland Islands. Uh, land-based tourism is on the grow in the Falkland Islands. And what we're doing is trying to make people aware of what there is in the Falkland Islands and how amazing that the experience is. I mean, in the Falklands, if you come and you, you put a blanket down around the penguins, pour yourself a glass of wine or sit down with a cup of coffee with a friend, uh, the penguins are as interested in you as you are in the penguins, and the penguins will come around you and get really close to you. So there's some really amazing experiences to be had in the Falklands. Um, Falkland Islands is just off the coast of Argentina, um, about 500 miles, a very remote island in the middle of the sea. Um, the Falkland Islands, when you think of them, you think of two islands, because that's generally what you see in pictures. But there's actually 760 islands that make up the Falkland Islands. Seven of the islands are inhabited. Um, and when we say inhabited, <laughs> there could be two people on an island. It could be a family settlement. Uh, tourism operations are on all of those islands. Um, in the, in the main area of Stanley, our, well, our total population in the Falkland Islands is 2,400. Um, we have a military presence of about the same. Uh, we're a British overseas territory. Uh, and, um, you know, our number one market is, is the UK. And the second market is America. Third market is Argentina. And well, the Falkland Islands are, are, are basically, they've just developed in their own way. There's uh, really not been an influence that actually directly calls them to become who they are. Um, there were five main families in the islands at, at in the beginning, and there's still five main, main families in the islands now that basically make up the, the population of the Falklands. Um, we are seeing a, a small decline in the population in the Falklands because some of the younger people now, when they go away for university, um, they don't come back. 
you know, they, they meet a wife or a husband outside of the Falklands. And so we have seen a little bit of a dip, and so we're working on that at the moment. But um, the, the Falkland Islands is, um, you, only, you have to see it to believe it. Historian and author Deborah Sando McCausland has deep roots in Gettysburg and Adams County, Pennsylvania. In our car ride with Deborah along the Underground Railroad, she brought to life the voices of the fugitive slaves and the Quakers who helped them. Yellow Hill is where a pre-Civil War free African-American community existed. And there were about 100 free Negroes that lived on Yellow Hill. Formerly, it had been called Pine Hill. We believe the benefactor of the Yellow Hill church lot and cemetery was Edward Matthews. He and his wife, Annie, moved here and purchased property in 1842. $350 got him 16 acres, and he gave part of his personal property for the community to have a church lot where they could bury the dead and worship the Lord. The church that was here on Yellow Hill was consecrated in 1869, according to the newspaper, and it's believed that it was burned down in the 1890s by three white local men, according to the local lore. No one was ever prosecuted for the church burning, but the church has been here, we believe, for decades prior to the 1890s. We heard that evangelical camp meetings were held here in the 1840s as a Quaker man from the valley below in the Quaker Valley put in his diary. They attended Negro camp meetings on Yellow Hill. Yellow Hill, home to the Matthews family that Deborah mentions, is central to her story about an almost forgotten community. So this site, what's left are about 20 graves. Most of the burials here have been removed, taken to other cemeteries, both the veterans. The soldiers are both removed from here. William Matthews was 15 years old when he went with his brother in the Civil War when his brother was drafted. He survived, but he was shot in the right leg. He had lung problems and died in his early 40s. Was buried here buried here in 1891. Ed Matthews was buried here in the 1870s. Both those men were taken to Lincoln Cemetery in Gettysburg. And Charles Parker, the other veteran, was in Company F of the 3rd Regiment USCT. His body was taken in 1936 to the National Cemetery, where President Lincoln said, all men are created equal. There are only two black men from the American Civil War buried there at the National Cemetery among thousands of white Union soldiers. But this site, we believe, was uh, his, is historic. Its uh, existence is very long. This was the heart and soul of the black community. The Matthews family was here from the 1830s through the 1890s. The history of Yellow Hill is full of stories of Quaker abolitionists and African Americans seeking freedom through extraordinary means. As we learn about a Quaker abolitionist named Cyrus Greest and a free black woman named Kitty Payne who was kidnapped in an effort to return her to slavery. Cyrus paid $100. 
help Kitty Payne get defended in Virginia court after she was kidnapped from Bear Mountain in 1845. Kitty had been a slave in Virginia, manumitted by her owner, lived here freely for two years. Five men kidnapped her and her three children in the middle of the night out of their slumber at gunpoint and knife point. Merely for the color of their skin, the whole kidnapping was arranged by the nephew of those that had enslaved her. The Maddox family in Virginia had owned Kitty, and Mr. Sam Maddox was also Kitty's father. Mrs. Mary Maddox favored Kitty, but uh, also said that Kitty's mother had to go and was removed from the farm shortly after Kitty's birth. Kitty was raised there by Mary Maddox on the farm as a house slave, not a field slave. She was allowed to marry, had four children. Mary Maddox manumitted her after Sam Maddox died. And it seemed as though Mary had a little bit of favoritism to her, and Kitty named one of her children, Mary, after her stepmother and slave owner. Kitty is living here freely. The nephew of the Maddoxes arranged the kidnapping. The uncle's will said, on my property goes to my wife Mary to do and use as she should see fit during her natural life. Whatever's left goes to my nephew, Samuel Maddox Jr. He thought he should inherit the slaves, even though she gave him the 111-acre farm for $1. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are driving along the Underground Railroad near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania with historian Deborah Sando McCausland. To learn more about Yellow Hill and the Underground Railroad near Gettysburg, visit this show page on our website at worldfootprints.com for relevant links. The greedy nephew had used those slaves as collateral on his bad debts, so he hired a professional kidnapper, Tom Finnegan of Hagerstown, Maryland, and three other men, and they kidnapped Kitty. They took her to Virginia. They wanted to sell her and her children on the auction block. But white folks got in the middle of it. Quakers in Virginia aided Cyrus Grace here in getting an attorney to defend her and a judge to hear her case in Virginia. She did not win. There was an appeal. It dragged on and on in Virginia. Kitty and her children were in the Rappahannock County Jail for over 300 days. Finally, one day in open court, the nephew said, It's over. I give up. The jailer was billing the nephew the cost to feed Kitty and the children in jail, and he was paying an attorney, paying the kidnappers, now paying to feed her, and he didn't have the benefit of her labor or the children's. So he gave it up. While standing outside a Quaker church, Deborah told us about the level of assistance the Quakers who were involved in the abolitionist movement offered to fugitive slaves. These uh, runaways ran on their own, and sometimes they were escorted from one safe house to the next. A guy who ran on his own was a slave from Hagerstown, Maryland, named James Pembroke. When he got his freedom, he changed his name to James W.C. Pennington. He was at the William and Phoebe Wright House, cousins of Cyrus Grace, Mm -hmm. in York Springs, about eight miles from here. He was there with them for about six months. They taught him to read and write. Mm -hmm. He later wrote a book called The Fugitive Blacksmith. He talks about going to the home of P.W. and W.W. and how he came in there, he found out... Wanted to know if he was in Pennsylvania, and he asked a woman where he might get a job. She said, go to William Wright's house. He stood at the door. He finally knocked. They opened the door, and it was breakfast time, a comfortably spread table. He was starving. And so he said, might I get a job here? And Mr. Wright said, come in, take thy breakfast, and get warm. Those words spoken by a stranger with such an air of simple sincerity and fatherly kindness made an overwhelming impression upon my mind. I was a starving fugitive without a friend or a home, a reward offered in the papers 
um, no claim upon him to whose door I went. Had uh, he turned me away, I must have perished. Nay, he gave me his own garments. He gave me food. Such treatment I had never before received at the hands of any white man. Those words written by James Pennington, who was once illiterate, are reflective of the valuable assistance many slaves received from the Quakers. James Pennington later became a Presbyterian minister, and as we learn from Deborah, the positive ripple effect of William and Phoebe Wright's kindness went beyond literacy. One of the members of his congregation was to be married. He said, I'm taking a bride. Anna Murray and I will be married. Anna Murray mm. married Frederick Douglass. James W.C. Pennington performed his marriage ceremony. Oh, my Pennington God. led the first streetcar boycott in New York City. Rosa Parks wasn't the first. Mm. Pennington did it 100 years before New York mm. City. He received honorary degrees from Heidelberg University. Mm. Incredible man, incredible man. And um, he said he wrote this book because he was tired of hearing about good Christian masters and the marvelous forms of slavery. Mm-hmm. You want to know what slavery's like? Ask a slave. To learn more about Yellow Hill or any of the actors in Gettysburg's Underground Railroad movement, visit this show page on worldfootprints.com for relevant links. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Coming up, we will travel to the final leg of the Underground Railroad on the East Coast when we stop in Lewiston, New York. Then we will cross the Niagara River into Canada and travel to the successful planned settlement of Buxton, Ontario, where former fugitive slaves experienced a fresh start in life. We will also shine a destination spotlight on Romania. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, we invite you to visit our website, worldfootprints.com, where you can peruse our library of radio shows, articles, and more. You can also find links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Lewiston, New York, was the final stop for runaway slaves from the South who sought to cross the border into Canada. Once slaves reached Lewiston, locals helped them to cross the Niagara River by boat or by foot when the river was frozen. But as Eva Nicholas and Tim Henderson from the Lewiston Council on the Art tell us, slaves and the citizens who helped them faced threats from bounty hunters and slave catchers who trolled the area known as Freedom Crossing. Lewiston was uh, the, the last stop, the northernmost stop on the Underground Railroad. Uh, because uh, we have the lower Niagara running right by our fair village, uh, you could actually see Canada. It's less than a mile away. And to many of the, the enslaved and, and the runaway slaves, 
Lewiston, they just meant one more night before they crossed over to Canaan land and freedom. And uh, Josiah Tryon, who was a tailor by day, uh, would row them across uh, during the uh, night. Being less than a mile away, the, the, the rowing would probably took him the better part of a, an hour or so, and of course he had to come back. But we had a bridge in Lewiston that uh, was used, and he was probably friends with a, a number of the, the customs agents. But a lot of times uh, Lake Erie would uh, freeze over, and it would save uh, you know the ice from uh, uh, hampering the the flow of uh, passengers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the the river itself would freeze over, which you know helped the the uh, people that were crossing. It must have been awful cold. Sure. Yes. Now, certainly for those who who are familiar with uh, Niagara Falls and the Niagara River, that's a very powerful river, and so that must have posed a challenge to many who made that trek. Uh, just getting across that river, whether by by boat or other means, that certainly had to be a harrowing experience for that last trip to Canaan land. Uh, yes, it was, especially in the uh, the dead of night. You know, um, he was always, you know, undercovering, undercover and watching out for bounty hunters, which, uh, you know, they weren't above uh, trailing them to Canada and trying to bring them back for a bounty. There is a a story, like I said, Josiah was a tailor by day, and the legend has it that he would befriend many of the bounty hunters that came into the village. Uh, they stood out like a, you know, sore thumb. But he would mm-hmm. present them with uh, brightly colored coats and jackets, and that way he knew where they were. Everybody uh, knew where they were. If he was wearing one of <laughs> Josiah's colorful coats. The Underground Railroad presented a number of challenges to slaves and the people who helped them. Disagreements between Josiah and his sister-in-law, Sally, was a subject of town gossip, and the family drama became known as Tryon's Folly. However, Eva tells us that even this family embarrassment presented an invaluable gift to fugitive slaves. Josiah didn't always see eye to eye on this whole Underground Railroad issue. Um, Sally was married to Josiah's older brother, Amos, and she had 11 children. And uh, Amos worked with Josiah um, on the Underground Railroad. But what happened was that he built his wife a beautiful mansion down on the river, and Sally refused to move into that mansion. And, of course, in Lewiston, which was a gossipy little town even back then, and things have not changed at all, uh, people started whispering, um, whispering behind their backs and called that house on the river Tryon's only folly. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are speaking to Eva Nicholas and Tim Henderson from the Lewiston Council on the Arts about the Underground Railroad history in Lewiston, New York. Visit worldfootprints.com for more information about the Underground Railroad history in Lewiston. Now, Sally refused to move into that house. Nobody really knows for sure why. But because she refused to, to move into that house, Josiah ended up using it as a safe house for his Underground Railroad work. 
it had seven cellars leading all the way down to the riverfront, and he would hide the escaped slaves in these in these cellars. Now, Sally, Sally didn't like this whole thing because she was afraid for her life. She was afraid that if her husband got caught, um, he would he would go to jail. He would lose everything, and where would she be with those eleven children? So, not everybody agreed with the work that Josiah did. Um, and mm. like he said, uh, the Underground Railroad was Lewiston's worst kept secret. Back jo- Josiah chose to uh, follow a higher law than the law of the land, and uh, he felt that the risk was very much worth taking and that, uh, you know, you couldn't measure a man's freedom by the length of his chain. Unfortunately, the stately home built by Amos is not part of Lewiston's Heritage Trail, but there is a way to get a glimpse inside. The house is uh, the house belongs to a, a private family, and they're not too crazy about you know buses and people you know going to look at it. So um, so it is a private home, and um, you know it's it's not marked. A couple of years ago, they were very gracious to allow us to. Uh, do some filming in their basements, and we put together a, uh, a scrolling uh, DVD, and, and you can watch it at the uh, Castellani Art Museum. Eva tells us that historical presenters in Lewiston and beyond are very passionate about keeping the history of the Underground Railroad alive. In Lewiston, in Niagara Falls, and Buffalo, the and even across the river in Canada, there are quite a few organizations that are passionate about preserving this history. Um, uh, There's Motherland Connections. The Castellani Art Museum of Niagara University has the Regional Interpretive Center. The Nathaniel Depp uh, Memorial Library in Canada. Uh, The Historical Association of Lewiston. Uh, Murphy Orchard is a little farmhouse out in the country that is said to have a cellar where where slaves stayed, and you know, so um, so they're they're all over the place. And most of us, for for most of the organizations that do underground railroad um, presenting, it's it's a very tight knit little network, and we all um, you know share our audiences with each other. What we have in Lewiston is is kind of special. It's called the Marble Orchard. And it is uh, the, really the umbrella of uh, many of the things that we do that brings history to life in Lewiston. Um, and we've been able to bring the Underground Railroad history to life in Lewiston by, uh, by giving people uh, historic walking tours. We do school tours for children. We do ghost walks, which oh my. focuses <laughs> on, the, you know, on the Underground Railroad and some of the other stories. But... In that way, we can really turn people on to um, how exciting history is. To learn more about Lewiston's history and Freedom Crossing, visit historiclewiston.org or visit this show page at worldfootprints.com for a direct link.
In this destination spotlight, we met Stefan Minovici at the New York Times Travel Show where he described Romania's location and cultural offerings. To make it easy for everybody, it's dead in the heart of Europe. So it's bordered by uh, Ukraine at the north, um, Bulgaria to the south and the Danube River, uh, to the east, Black Sea and Ukraine again, and then, of course, uh, Hungary uh, to the west, Hungary and the um, Serbian uh, Republic. The history can be uh, traced back to 3,500 years ago um, during the tracks uh, rule of the region, and, of course, uh, the docks, D-A-C-S, uh, came to uh, emerge from the tract population, um, so we're looking about 2200 years ago. Then of course uh, there is a campaign um, which by the Roman Empire to conquer Dacia, that was the name of the country, and they accomplished this in 106 BC, and um, then it's become what today is known as Romania, from the Roman Empire actually. There are three separate regions, Transylvania, Valachia and uh, Moldova. And they were united in uh, 1600 by Michael the Great, one of this uh, prince and, and, and the most significant rulers of, uh, of Romania. Transylvania in Romania may be best known for its famous resident, Dracula. So how many Dracula castles are there? Stefan tells us. So the matter is there is only one, and that the real castle where Vlad the Impaler, or Dracula, uh, really uh, lived in, it's gone. It's been demolished. There's a castle in Bran, this is um, north of Brasov, uh, and that castle, it's claimed to be one of his, but it's not. It's beautiful, it's, it's also historical establishment, but the actual castle, it was, uh, was uh, erased, so to speak. As far as Dracula is concerned, it's, uh, some, it's, it's a ruler that was revered by the people and well-respected, not the bloodthirsty uh, demon. Indeed, it's, it's, a, um, it's a beautiful region, and uh, Prince Charles um, has two homes in Transylvania. He has his own uh, garden, he brings his own vegetable on a private jet back to London. So um, it, it's a very attractive part of Europe, very unique in, in many ways. After the War of 1812, Canada's reputation as a safe haven for fugitive slaves grew because of the development of settlements like the Southern Ontario farming community of Buxton. Buxton was one of four planned settlements for fugitive slaves, and its founder, Reverend William King, a white man, fought other white settlers to establish the area. Buxton is still a viable community, and longtime residents, Brian and Shannon Prince, still farm the land of their ancestors. They also help preserve Buxton's history through the Buxton National Historic Site and Museum. Reverend King was quite a remarkable man. He was born in Ireland, but he moved to the States as a young man, and he eventually moved to Louisiana, where he married into a slaveholding family. Um, through a series of circumstances, he acquired 15 slaves. And in Louisiana at that time, you couldn't legally emancipate your slaves, so he sought a place where he could set them free and came to Canada um, with the help of some investors and anti-slavery sympathizers, formed an association which purchased 9,000 acres of barren land. This was in the late 40s as he was seeking it out, mm -hmm. and it was actually 1849 when he eventually moved here, brought his slaves along with him, um, freed them, and then turned the 9,000 acres, made it available to other runaway slaves and free blacks. And so as time went on up into the Civil War, 
Buxton became the largest of those planned settlements. The population would have been about 1,200 people. Reverend King built more than just a safe community for former slaves. As Shannon tells us, Reverend King's vision for Buxton as an integrated and self-sustaining community was based on three principles, security, education, and religion. When Reverend King arrived in the settlement, um, he secured, actually when he founded the area, there were three principles that he based it on. Once the land was secured, uh, and that he had, and then there was the education and religion. Um, and religion was very, very important. Not only was he a minister, but it was their faith that sustained um, those people on that perilous journey to freedom. And the education, because blacks were denied one in the South, so it was very important that they have one when they arrived here. And he also believed that if blacks were given the, those same opportunities as whites, as white, uh, they could become self-sufficient and self-sustaining, um, even though there was quite a bit of opposition in the beginning. And ironically, it was that educational system that brought down a lot of those racial barriers. When Reverend King took um, his former slaves to the district or common school, it was closed. And so he decided to build, he and several people in the area, decided to build one on his own property. And when the doors were open, he invited everyone to come. It didn't matter, you know, the color of your skin. You were welcome to attend his school. So when the doors were open, there were 14 black children and two white children that attended that school. And within a year, there were more white. There were more children wanted to go to Reverend King's school now because the education that he was teaching was called a classical education. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything, the basics, the arithmetic. Um, geography, English, plus Greek, Latin, and a Christian-based education. And um, now some of the whites who were opposed to this settlement being formed now are seeking permission from Reverend King to have their children attend this school where the quality of education is being taught. So, you know, it's okay for Mary to go to school with a black child now and to be taught by a black teacher. Buxton is located 45 minutes east of Windsor, Canada, and three hours from Toronto. The area's close proximity to the Canadian-U.S. border was convenient for fugitive slaves, but it also remained accessible to slave catchers. Buxton, I guess because when um, uh, the fugitive slave law was passed in the United States in 1850, um, even though slave catchers were not allowed to come into Canada, the settlements along the Detroit River, um, the, um, they were, you know, very accessible to slave catchers, Windsor and Detroit and Niagara and Buffalo. So they were ri- risking a lot by coming this far north. Now, when Buxton was founded, how many people settled the community at first? There was sort of a gradual influx of people. Um, w- within a couple of years, there were 200 families. Um, by 1857, I think there were 300 families. And the population got to be about 1,200 people by the time the Civil War began. But we spoke about the 9,000 acres that formed the settlement, but actually the area immediately surrounding the settlement was also predominantly black. So there was probably closer to, um, well, well over 5,000 acres um, settled by black families who thought of Buxton as their center. They went to school there. They went to church there. They were part of that whole social community. Shannon, when you were talking about Reverend King and we got a real sense of what kind of man he was, but he also imposed some pretty strict standards on those who came. What was behind these rules? 
number one, when they arrived here, um, they had um, they had a hard they had to deal with the concept of being free. Number one, uh, because they had been enslaved probably most of their lives, and now suddenly they were free. That term to them did not really mean anything until they realized that yes, you do. You know, own yourself. You own your property. You own your land. And now, you you know, you're working for yourself. So there was some structure there for them. But also the fact that because there was that opposition in the beginning, Reverend King basically wanted to dispel those myths in the outlying area that blacks were lazy, uneducated, and dirty. And yes, they could become self-sufficient and self-sustaining. And those rules were established to say, yes, they can do this. And it was touted as one of the most successful settlements in Canada West at the time. And the rules, they, they adhered to them very well, um, like the flower garden. You know, um, there were competitions throughout the settlement to see who had the best flower garden. And there was a strong sense of community as well that was instilled in everyone. So when you arrived, everyone received those 50 acres, but you, and you were charged $2.50 an acre. And you had 10 years, within 10 years, to pay that off. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're talking to Buxton, Ontario residents and historians, Brian and Shannon Prince, about the planned settlement of Buxton, Ontario, Canada's role in the Underground Railroad, and the country's own history with slavery. There was indeed slavery here in Canada, and it did not end until Britain abolished it throughout its empire in 1834. So, um... Just sort of as an aside, there are interesting stories about slaves here in Canada escaping over to Michigan and Ohio, the Northwest Territory of, of the U.S., because in theory there was no slavery there. So you have that sort of um, reverse Underground Railroad, slaves mm-hmm. escaping from Canada to the United States. But, but after 1834 especially, um, Canada was viewed as the place where blacks could come and truly be free. And we're learning more and more all all the time about how widespread the Underground Railroad Network was. And um, some of the stories are familiar to a lot of your listeners, um, William Still in particular in Philadelphia and his network. But there were certainly networks um, in New York, Ohio, uh, Washington, D.C., Indiana, Michigan, Illinois. And they are very much connected with a sort of a handful of anti-slavery activists here in Canada. And it's very interesting as you scan the old newspapers of the day, the minutes of the anti-slavery societies, and individual letters and diaries that survive. Um, It's interesting to see how closely connected those agents, those abolitionists were in Canada. And in the United States. There were two fugitive slave laws, but the one that passed in 1850 struck terror throughout the black community because it incentivized slave catchers and the judicial system to return freed black slaves to slavery. There actually was a Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, but as time went on, it wasn't quite as strictly enforced, and it didn't have the teeth in it that the 1850 um, Fugitive Slave Law had. When that was passed, there was a terror that sort of uh, flowed throughout the northern states. Blacks who had perhaps been free for generations were not safe. They were, you'll often read stories of them being kidnapped and sent into slavery. And then, of course, there were a great many 
who were fugitive slaves who had fled um, some of the year or two or ten in the northern states. And the teeth of the law demanded that the, the regular citizen be a part of capturing runaway slaves. There were fines and threatened jail sentences for interfering with the capture of runaways. There were incentives for judges to rule that um, a black brought before them was, a, was indeed a runaway slave. The judge would get $10 if he ruled it was a runaway. Mm-hmm. He would get $5 if he ruled the person was free. And to make matters worse, blacks were not allowed to testify on their own behalf. So there is this shudder that goes throughout the, throughout the black communities in the north, and a flood begins. Brian, coming back to the institution of slavery in Canada, was slavery different in Canada versus uh, the American South or even in parts of the United States such as Missouri? Well, I, I, think, I, I think it was very different from what most of us think of as slavery in the South. I think it's, it, it perhaps more closely parallels when, when there was slavery in the northern states. Um, here there weren't the huge plantations that needed a, a big labor force. People often would have two or three slaves, um, perhaps a smaller family. Um, they were in a little bit closer proximity working in the house and in the barns and, and in, in the surrounding smaller farm, which is much different than the large cotton and sugarcane um, plantations that we think of in the South. So there were attachments. Um, but but that's one of the, the most interesting things I find when I'm researching. And, and you see the interviews that were done with slaves, with former slaves, and it's quite incredible to me how often they will say how I missed the master or I, I missed the mistress. Hmm. I had an attachment to um, their children, and I would like to go back. And so there, there is that strange um, contradiction of, of the fear, the terror, the, the, the things we all think about in slavery. But then just those, those human attachments, um, quite something. For more information on the Buxton Historical Site and Museum, visit this show page at worldfootprints.com. Now, there are a lot of paths along the Underground Railroad. The path that we took today in today's show is just one of many from people traveling to the north from the south. But even with this limited pathway from Virginia through Pennsylvania, New York, and Ontario, 
we uncovered a ton of stories that we never heard about before. And that begs the question, you know, how many more other stories are out there? There's just a lot of surprising stories that we've heard today. And one of the most surprising ones was to start our Underground Railroad tour in Norfolk, Virginia. And a lot of people don't really think of the South as being pertinent to the Underground Railroad, but this trail that uh, Dr. Cassandra Newby-Alexander at Norfolk State uh, has helped to bring to life in Norfolk really layers a different story on the Underground Railroad, and we kind of learn what a border city uh, that was in the South actually was more free and open than places like Maryland and other parts of Virginia and certainly other parts of the South in terms of providing a safe haven to blacks who were trying to make it north. Yeah, and, you know, I must say I was very, very surprised uh, to hear about an underground railroad in Virginia because, like everyone else, like yourself, Virginia is the South. It is below the Mason-Dixon line, and so it was very surprising to hear that there was a coalition of Quakers who even helped uh, Kitty Payne, the first black person, African-American woman, to actually be heard in court. I mean, that's unprecedented, you know, that that she found that in in Virginia. And that's one of many favorite stories that we uncovered uh, on today's show, especially as a lawyer, as, as lawyers that resonated with me. Yeah, and certainly in the case of Kitty Payne, she was... In Pennsylvania, and they came to Pennsylvania. Her nephew of the former owner brought her back to Virginia, uh, basically as if she's chattel and she had been properly manumitted. And so it, it just points out that even being in the North, being above the Mason-Dixon line, didn't necessarily guarantee freedom, mm-hmm. even if you had the legal papers to declare that you were a free person. Well, that was a result of the Fugitive Slave Act, which which we talked about um, in in the show, and it really just uh, empowered judicial persons and law enforcement to declare that even free people were slaves because they were compensated for those lies. Another one of my favorite stories that we shared also came out of our Gettysburg journey, and that was a story of James Pennington, who happened upon the kindness of two strangers, a Quaker family, who happened to teach him to read and write. You know, he was illiterate, and he spent six months with him, I understand, and that act of kindness actually allowed him to go to Yale Divinity School and become a Presbyterian minister, and fast forward a few years, he ended up marrying Frederick Douglass to his wife. And that is just a wonderful example of the type of positive ripple an act of kindness can have on a person's life. So on that beautiful note, in closing, consider this thought. In recognizing the humanity of our fellow beings, we pay ourselves the highest tribute. Thurgood Marshall As always, it's a pleasure to spend this time with you, and we thank you so much for inviting us into your life. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing another amazing journey with you on World Footprints Radio.
World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.